My name is Maurice Bean. I'm one of, the, one of your elders here at Crosspoint. And this is our first Sunday of Advent. We're going to be hearing from God's Word in the book of Micah for this month. There's a reading plan provided online for Advent. We're also very excited to hear from what, what God has in store for us in this very unusual year of 2020. I would like to welcome our guest today. If this is your first time here, on the back of the seat, there's a little pocket there, should have a visitor's card. Please fill that out for us. If you fill that out and turn it in at the, the visitor's booth, guest booth over here, whatever, as you, as you exit later, we promise not to visit your home unless you invite us to. Okay, but we do want to, we do would like, we would like to have a record of your visit this morning. If you have a prayer request, please put that down. And if you put your email address down, we will then also connect you to our weekly preparation for each Sunday. If you're a visitor online, text connect, should be up there, or it will be, to 903-458-9199 for more information about Crosspoint Fellowship. Uh, so text connect to 903-458-9199. Now, this first, first image I want to put up here, a great multitude plus you. This comes from the Southern Baptist Convention. We have the absolute privilege for this month to support missionaries overseas. And it takes a multitude. It takes a multitude to carry the gospel across the, to, to the nations. It takes a multitude to support those missionaries overseas. 185 years ago, Think about that. 185 years ago, the first missionaries from the United States went overseas. And then 175 years ago, the Southern Baptist Convention formed the International Mission Board. So the International Mission Board has been in existence for 175 years, sending and supporting missionaries overseas. And we have a history as Southern Baptists of supporting and following God's commandment to reach the nations. And this is one of the ways that we do that. The Southern Baptist Convention has a focal missions project every December that churches all over participate in. Know if you'll put that second image up there? The Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. If you've never, if you've never heard about that before, you get to hear about it in the next few minutes. If you've heard about it before, maybe you'll hear something you hadn't heard. As I, as I researched this, I learned some things. One of the things that Lottie Moon said in one of her letters, written on September 15, 1887, from Tungchow, China, she said in this letter, why should we not do something that will prove that we are really in earnest in claiming to be followers of him who, though he was rich, for our sake became poor. That was really one of her go-to lines. Charlotte Diggs Moon, also known as Lottie Moon, was born December the 12th in 1840 in Virginia. She rebelled against Christianity until her high school years when she accepted the Lord and she was baptized, I turned too many pages, hang on. 
She was baptized at First Baptist Church, Charlottesville, Virginia. She attended a college in Virginia that was a counterpart of the University of Virginia, and she was one of the first women to receive a master's degree in the United States. She stayed pretty close to home during the Civil War, but eventually taught school in Kentucky, Georgia, and Virginia. Her older sister, Edmonia Moon, was appointed to Ting Chow, China in 1872. The following year, Lottie went over and, enjoy, and joined her, and then she served 39 years as a missionary, mostly in China's Shantung province. She taught in a girls' school and often made trips to China's interior to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to women and girls in other communities. Lottie was passionate about people knowing Christ, and she didn't hesitate to speak her mind. Today's China is a world of rapid change, as all of our nations are in rapid change right now. China is home to 1.4 billion individuals, one-fifth of the world's population. Village dwellers flock to trendy megacities with exploding populations. And China holds its own in the world's economy. It's very different from the farmlands that Lottie Moon went to initially. But one thing hasn't changed. China needs a savior. Lottie wrote home many times detailing China's hunger for truth and the struggle for the few missionaries taking the gospel to, at that time, 472 million Chinese people. She also shared the urgent need for workers for her Southern Baptists, for Southern Baptists to support them through prayer and giving. She once wrote home to the Foreign Mission Board, please say to the new missionaries they are coming to a life of hardship, responsibility, and constant self-denial. Boy, that'd make you line up, wouldn't it? <laughs> it did for a lot of people. Disease, turmoil, and a lack of co-workers threatened to undo Lottie's work, but she gave herself completely to God. And after 39 years of service in China, she died at the age of 72. Her legacy lives on. Today, when gifts aren't growing as quickly as the number of workers God is calling to the field, her call for sacrificial giving rings with more urgency than ever. So what is this Lottie Moon offering? After her death on the field, her challenge was headed up or was heeded in the formalization of an offering in her name. Even if you're not a Southern Baptist who has given to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering before now, her life is a reminder of why we must give to send and support missionaries serving among people in other nations. In 1918, the Women's Missionary Union, the WMU, if you grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, you know all about WMU. Okay. But they named the annual Christmas offering for international missions after the woman who had urged them to start it. So I know if you'll put the third image up there. So how can we help? This year we celebrate 175 years since the founding of the International Mission Board. The Southern Baptist Convention has set a goal of $175 million for missionary help for the Lottie Moon offering. It's important to note that every single penny given to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering goes directly to missionaries. Not one cent of it goes to administration. It all goes to missionaries. Here at Crosspoint, 
The elders have set a goal for us of $10,000 for our yearly Lottie Moon offering. We hope to collect that during the month of December. We're not looking to collect it all today. If we do, great. But you weren't, you weren't expecting this this morning, so whether you go home, when you go home or if you're online, please pray about this and ask God what he would have you do to support the missionaries and the nations. Again, it doesn't have to be given today. You can use the envelopes in the little chair, the back pocket on the chairs. You can designate that to Lottie Moon. If you're online, you can also just in the comment line put Lottie Moon in there. And Grace assured me she would get that figured out. And there may be eventually a line item that you can click to show Lottie Moon, but we have to get that done. But there's going to be a way to do that. So I urge you to pray now how your family can help the missionaries around the world. Also, Southern Baptist Convention has asked us to pray for this week, starting today, in a week of prayer for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. You should have picked one of these up as you came in. If you didn't pick one up, they're going to be over on this kiosk as you leave, so be sure and pick one up. Each day we're going to be praying for a specific mission and missionary. So let's pray for, for missions. Today we're going to be praying for missions on and off the street. Specifically, the Nabasha Children's Shelter in Kenya. The International Mission, Mission Board, International Mission Board missionary, Kristen Lowry, works with street children helping provide restoration to families. So join me in prayer this morning. Fathers, we come before you this morning. We thank you for the day that you've created. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Father, it's a gorgeous thought, a gorgeous day that you created for us to be alive, to draw a breath, and to worship you this morning. Father, I pray this morning as we enter into a time of, of study and worship that you would hear our prayers for Kristen Lowry and her work with street children and helping provide restoration to families. Father, there's so many children in Kenya that literally just live on the streets. They have no other place to go. They have no families. But she has been very, very successful in restoring children to families. Father, I pray that you would strengthen her, provide her the needs that she has. Father, we trust you and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. All right, this morning, our first Advent Sunday, Eric and Abby Rogers are going to come up and read the Advent scripture and light the Advent candle. Our reading is out of Isaiah 26, 21. It says, For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the bloodshed on it and will no more cover its slain. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for 
what the Advent season means, that as Lottie Moon knew, you were rich, you became poor for our sake. We pray that you would show us what it means that the Word became flesh through the preaching of the Word this day. Show us how you have destroyed the works of the enemy for our sake. Give us the peace, Lord, in this season that only comes through Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. All right. Thank you, Morris. Uh, You guys are going to be hearing about Lottie Moon each week for the next uh, four Sundays after today. Uh, our sort of the theme that we're talking about as a staff and we've been uh, considering as elders is that Jesus is better than some of the things we might go without so that we can participate in this offering. So just the consideration as a family, you may consider what are some things you might go without that could go toward a meaningful contribution to this offering. It, it is a worthwhile offering and something we have a chance to do each year. Uh, Eric and Abby, thank you for reading for us. So you're going to hear from a different group of, uh, it could be a, a couple of young adults, it might be a family, it, it, it'll be various folks over the next four weeks. Uh, but this passage, it, it's, it's pretty interesting. If, if you're kind of paying attention, you notice that sounds like maybe a strange Advent reading. It is precisely the reading that's leading us into where we're going this morning. So um, the Lord is coming out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. Uh, the, the emphasis being on that he's come out of his place. So uh, let me go to the, to the Lord in prayer, and we will climb into our passage in the book of Micah. Lord, we are thankful for these few minutes that we have together. We are entrusting this time to you. Lord, speak to your people, equip your saints. Lord, uh, guide us into uh, wholehearted, sweet, potent, um, otherworldly, uh, sojourner-like, pilgrim-like worship so that we are not caught up in the things of the world, we're not defeated by the things of the world, we're not um, um, led away and enticed by the lies of Satan, Lord, but that we are uh, renewed day by day in this great gospel that we walk in. Lord, that's my prayer this morning, is that you would do that for us in these next few minutes, praying for a profound outcome, that our minds and hearts would be renewed and refreshed and equipped Uh, to go into this Advent season, this season of uh, celebrating Christmas. Lord, also want to pray for a people group this morning, praying for the Maratha of India, 31 million strong, 0.00 of which are Christian. Lord, we are praying for a massive people group that is absolutely and completely stem to stern lost. Lord, you know these people uh, like the back of your hand, and we're lifting up people that you know by name, You know their every fear, their every worry. Um, You know where they are looking to and who they are looking to. Uh, Lord, we uh, just pray that you would draw them to you, that you would open the eyes of their hearts, that you would send workers to the far corners of the field coupled with that work that you're doing in their hearts so that you would draw this people group to you. Lord, it's a massive prayer, and we know that you are able and capable pray like Lottie Moon that you would mobilize people that they're not comfortable with staying here and trust in this people group to you. Lord, also want to pray for another church in our community. I just want to pray for 
Matt Beasley and uh, Ridgecrest Baptist Church. I'm thankful for Matt and his friendship and thankful for the kind of ministry that he and his family and the other elders of Ridgecrest bring to this community and the church as a whole. Lord, what a wonderful church. We have a, 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 a just are so blessed to, uh, to be a sister church with Ridgecrest. And we lift them up this morning asking you to bless them, Lord. Bless the time that they're spending in worship this morning. I pray that you would equip them and galvanize them, mobilize them to be salty, bright, and aromatic in our community. Uh, we pray for Matt and his family, Lord, that they would be blessed during this season and blessed in the work. That you would guard his heart from uh, some of the lies of Satan and the discouragements uh, that Satan uh, brings to uh, the ministry and those in the ministry. And that you would guard his heart in Christ Jesus and that you would keep him encouraged in this ultimate reality that we're walking in. And give him eternal eyes that are focused on Christ, uh, fixed on Christ, and um, just uh, pray that that would overflow onto a people this morning. Lord, also uh, just want to uh, pray that you would uh, bless these few minutes that we have together, Lord. Equip us, speak to us, in Christ's precious name we pray, amen. Been thinking and reflecting on 2020, it has been a, quite a year, we have... Um, over the course of the year, as we've been recording, uh, we've been, uh, you know, my, I've been from my own office over there on YouTube and things like that. It has been, I know there have been occasions where we've talked about how frustrating and terrible the year is, but I, I've been reflecting on what the Lord has given us in this year. We've lost some people. I mean, we need to start right there. This world really has lost a, fo- a, lot, a lot of folks that seem like, appear like it's far too soon. And we want to start right there and grieve with those who are grieving. But we should also look for what God might be doing in this time. And I, I'm hoping that maybe in this, this last week of Thanksgiving that you had the chance to reflect on what God may have done in this last year and be thankful for some of the things. Some of the things that we're thankful for as a family is that he has simplified our lives in Greenville, Texas. As a family, he simplified our ministry at Crosspoint Fellowship. That's a good thing. Jesus showed up 2,000 years ago for 33 years and walked at three miles an hour. No internet, no modes of transportation any faster than a, a, a donkey. And here we sit in a time and age where things are moving so fast and so much is so urgent and we have to respond to texts. Two seconds later, our people think you're mad at them. We're living in a world that's at 100 miles an hour and something that slows us down to three miles an hour is a treasure. The time that you've spent in your homes in quarantine, if you've had to do that, reframe that and consider that God's given you time together as a family. Wonderful, undistracted time. People have gone for walks. People are now doing things outside that they've never done before, maybe considering the lilies and the birds. What a great, great outcome that we can reframe this crazy year and think that God has slowed us down and what God might do with a season of simplifying. I hope that you can reflect on some things that you're thankful for. I can think of one family in particular that has counted every day this year a boon to spend with their son. One more day with their little lad. Man, we can all do with a reframing of 2020 and stop complaining about it and think what God might have done in this year and consider that it could be really be wonderful. Now, on the same time, I'll tell you, this world is pretty weary. I was traveling through Austin uh, last week. Mistake number one. I was driving on 290. Any of you know where 290 is? Uh, 290 is um, 
I was going from the 75 miles an hour down to the 70, down to 65, down to 55. And I was into the 55 mile an hour zone probably um, just a couple of miles in. I'm, there's a van in front of me. I'm in the right lane because I'm not a left lane lingerer. I'm not going to stay in the left lane. Those of you that do should repent. <laughs> so anyway, I'm my right lane. I come up behind this van that's going a little bit slower than me. So I ease off in the left lane and I 10 and 2. Here I am in left lane going around them. And um, man, somebody comes up behind me and they are so in such a hurry and so frustrated. A black pickup. You know, this guy is really in a hurry. And he gets right up on my bumper. Then he moves over behind the van next to me, gets up, up on that bumper, realizes I'm going a tad faster than that van, trying not to break the law. So I'm going about 60 into 55 just so I can get around this person. And I look back and he's back on my bumper again and he's laying into the horn and he's gesturing, all, all manner of gestures that I don't know how he's driving because he was using both hands to gesture. It was really, really aggressive. He acted like he was going to come around me on the turn lane and I was going to let him do that. But I had one little slight moment where I thought, well, I'm just going to kind of hang out here for a little bit. But I didn't, I didn't, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I went ahead and eased around the van and as I came around the van, this guy came you know, racing by me and, and gestured, waved, waved at me some more. And, um, and then about a mile and a half later, we came to a stoplight and he turned into a gas station. I thought, oh, this is convenient. So I pulled into the gas station because I just wanted to reason with him. I just want to talk to him and say, hey, man, I was doing all I could do. I see everybody shaking their head like this is not going to go well. <laughs> Uh, it didn't go great, but it didn't go terribly. I mean, I, I'm not in jail. I mean, nobody, there weren't any kind of blows, you know, thrown or anything like that. Um, but he really wasn't very reasonable. And I got back out on uh, 290 a few minutes later. And um, I realized, man, people are just angry. And then I had to make the trip home to Greenville the rest of the time uh, where people were driving. Man, people are just mad. People were stove up. This world is mad. I was telling Christy about that story and she, she was like, I'm not sure you should tell him that you pulled into the gas station. I said, well, you know, I did. I can't, can't keep that. So anyway, um, I was telling Christy the story and talking about really how people were driving, you know, from Austin here and uh, how angry people are and stove up they are. And Christy said, it sounds like a weary world is, needs some rejoicing. Because we were talking about the timeliness of Advent and how fitting that Advent is coming right now in this year. And she said, it sounds like a weary world rejoicing. I said, man, that's going to be our theme right there. A weary world rejoicing. We are in a sweet spot as a church. We're in a sweet spot as followers of Christ. That we have the next five Sundays to stop down and enjoy Jesus. To look for and enjoy and be satisfied and delight in the person and work of Christ. Uh, through an ancient book called Micah. So if you would, I would encourage you to go ahead and turn to Micah, and um, I will go ahead and read our focus passage. You can stand. Actually, you can stand as you turn there, or if you need to do that in a different order. But do stand with me if you would, and we'll go ahead and read our passage. We're Micah chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, 
the Lord is coming down out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. Let's pray again. Lord, we come to you this morning asking you to speak to us from these ancient words. We are entrusting this time to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Y'all have a seat. My plan for the morning is to invite you into some excavation. We're going to excavate this passage, uh, uh, really most of the first two chapters, not every passage, but I want to acquaint you with these first two chapters and with and really kind of a bird's eye view of the book of Micah uh, so that you'll be equipped in these coming weeks. The five Sundays we're going to be in Micah. So some of the work I'm doing now will be work that our other preachers this week will be leaning into, some things that you'll need in the coming weeks. Uh, and I'm just going to tell you right now, um, if you do the work this morning, there's a big treasure at the end of it. There really is a treasure at the end of it, but it's going to be some work for you. You're going to need to, uh, to really, you know, focus. And I know we've got little ones in here and y'all just do the best you can do. Uh, I'm, I'm praying for our little ones and praying for those with young that you'll be okay, that you'll not fret and just do the best you can to press on through this time. It's a wonderful, wonderful glimpse into the gospel here in Micah. So the plan is uh, just to start here with verse one, just kind of introduce us to the book. And then we'll go through the rest of the chapter. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. First of all, I want to deal with the man, and then the place, and then the time, and then the book. Okay, all from this verse, verse, we can kind of glean some things. First of all, the man that, the prophet that we're speaking of here is a man named Micah. He's a man from Moresheth. Uh, he was a contemporary of Isaiah. Uh, some have described the book of Micah as the book of Isaiah in miniature. So if you've ever read the book of Isaiah and your head is spinning and you're like, man, I'm kind of lost in this book. It's so big and so uh, complicated. And the book of Micah is a great place to go to sort of make sense of the same message of Isaiah. Uh, he's from Moresheth. The man is, is first of all, and then Micah in the second place from the, the place. He's from a place called Moresheth, is in the region of Shephelah. Okay, the region of Shephelah is really the foothills of Jerusalem. Uh, it's apparently a very rich, fertile land. I found a, a little write-up on Shephelah and thought I would share this to you so you can kind of envision Micah's homeland. The home of Micah is fair and fertile. I kind of want to read this with an Irish accent, but I won't because it's not a very good Irish accent. The irregular chalk hills are separated by broad glens in which the soil is alluvial and red. With room for cornfields on either side of the perennial or almost perennial streams. The olive groves on the, bra on the braes are finer than either those of the plain below or of the Judean tableland above. There's herbage for cattle. Bees murmur everywhere. Isn't this beautiful? It's like a, like a poem or something. Bees murmur everywhere, larks are singing, and although today you may wander in the maze of hills for hours without meeting a man or seeing a house, you're never out of sight of the traces of ancient habitation and seldom beyond the sound of the human voice. Shepherds and plowmen calling to their flocks and to each other across the glens. Isn't that quaint? It sounds like a really beautiful place. It's basically the foothills of Jerusalem, and that's going to be important. I wasn't wasting our time there with some flowery reading. I want you to envision those plush, fertile hills and glens of the Shephelah, uh, in the area of Shephelah and Moresheth. The time, okay, the man they're dealing with is the man Micah. Uh, 
The place is in uh, the region of Shephelah on into Jerusalem, which is not far from there. He likely had a home in both places. Uh, it appears that he actually did some of his uh, ministry or accomplished some of his ministry in Jerusalem, but he's from the place of Morsheth. Uh, the time frame. Noah, you can go ahead and put up that, uh, that image for me. I thought I would acquaint you. You know, for me, it's really helpful envisioning chronology. I need to know where things fit in time. And I realize this morning is going to be a little bit of teaching, but sometimes you have to do some teaching and do some preaching. And I'm also dealing with a passage or a a section in our Bible that is often neglected and it's fearfully um, unknown to a lot of contemporary Christianity. And it shouldn't be. It's a a place that we should dust, you know, dust off and remove the cobwebs and climb into because it's full of treasure. It's full of treasure that gives us an insight into the gospel. So let me acquaint you with this timeline and I'm going to kind of build this up and you can leave this up for a moment afterward. If I recall, I'll I'll tell you when to shut that down, Noah. This timeline is something you've seen before. Uh, We used this last year when we were in uh, the book of Zechariah. Uh, It's one that I've used in many years past. I have us on this timeline because it's really the story of us. It's the story of the people of God and we're on that timeline. Okay. So it starts in creation back whether you're an old earth or a young earth person. That's why that's a dotted line there. We're not really putting a time on it. Uh, some high water marks in the story of a people, the people of God, are the story of Abraham, the Exodus, 1,500 years before Christ, and David, about 1,000 years before Christ. Okay. Lots of books are connected to those time frames. So having those times kind of on rote memory are pretty easy. That's why I'm broken them down into 500-year chunks. Pretty close, not to the exact year, but pretty close. Okay, go ahead with the next slide, Noah. Reformation, we've got to have the Reformation on there. All right, it's a high, high water mark in the story of a people. Okay, next. Okay, about 930 BC, uh, one of Solomon's sons, uh, Rehoboam, uh, really took counsel with his high school buddies instead of taking counsel from the wise men that served in his father's court, and he split the kingdom. Okay, the nation of Israel was split between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Okay, that's about 930 BC, right around in there. Okay, next. All right, Israel, uh, these are some high water marks in this big expanse here of about a thousand years. It's really confusing, and I want to make it really simple. Okay, Israel, that northern kingdom I just mentioned, is actually uh, goes into uh, exile around 722 BC when the Assyrian army invades and destroys Samaria, okay? They go off into exile in Assyria, and the Assyrians repopulate the whole region of Israel, or Samaria, okay? Go ahead and next. That's 722 B.C. Fast forward to uh, Judah, the southern kingdom. In 587 B.C., Jerusalem's destroyed, and they go into exile into Babylon, okay? Those are very important dates, very important events in the life of the people of God. Um, Do you have to memorize those dates? Not necessarily, but it's not hard. And it actually would be worthwhile. 722 B.C. and 587 B.C. Okay? 71 A.D. is another one, the destruction of the the temple in Jerusalem. Just put those those on your memory bank and just kind of realize a lot of our books connect to those dates. Okay, what's the next one? Okay, Micah fits into this time frame. 742 B.C. to 686 B.C. I wasn't able to make a little bracket here, but it's basically straddling what's going on in the northern kingdom in 722 BC, okay? He doesn't survive and live. He's not, he's not Methuselah. He doesn't live forever. He's dead by the time Judah goes into 
exile into Babylon. Okay, he foretells some of the things that are connected to that. But his ministry is mainly focused on being a front, having a front row seat to what's going on in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom around 722 B.C. and straddling that. Now, he probably didn't serve those entire 56 years. Okay, he probably served 40 to 50 years. But the expanse is identified by these kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Those three kings, we know exactly, precisely when they were kings of Judah. So that's why we're able to come up with those specific dates of 742 B.C. to 686 B.C. Okay, that's when Micah served. Do I have any pictures after that? Is that it? Is it? Okay, all right. You can leave that up just for maybe two or three minutes, and then you can kill that. Okay. So Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah are the kings of Judah, while Micah served as a prophet. And again, those dates are 742 B.C. to 686 B.C. In some ways, identifying who the kings of, of Judah were would be like if we were to say, uh, you know, this ministry at Crosspoint began uh, George, around George W. and ended, or at least is ongoing right now during Joe Biden. Okay, it's not ending. Hopefully it doesn't end while we're alive, or maybe ever. It goes right on into eternity, so. Okay, the word of the Lord for Samaria and Jerusalem. We've identified the man, his name is Micah. We identified the place, it's Moresheth and Jerusalem and the region of Shephelah. The time around and straddling 722 BC, the time that the northern kingdom goes into exile into Assyria. And, has, and, and Micah says he's bringing a word of the Lord for Samaria and Jerusalem. Okay, Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom. Okay, he's identifying these regions by their capitals. Okay, I've already kind of pointed out we're talking a divided kingdom. In the north is Israel with Samaria as their capital. In the south is, is, is Judah with Jerusalem as their capital. Now, there are two things that are going on in the world at this point while Micah is, is, is unfolding. The first thing that's going on in this part of the world is the nation of Israel the nation of Judah, both of them, are experiencing um, more affluence uh, than they have since Solomon. Okay, in a couple hundred years or so plus since Solomon, they're experiencing more um, uh, affluence than they have at any other time before Solomon. With affluence came materialism, oppression of the poor, neglect of the sojourner, they might have, and I'm putting this in there, not as a political statement, but just as a nice visual. They might have suggested, let's build a wall. Let's keep the sojourner out because we don't want, to let, we don't want them to have our space. We don't want them to do the things that, we're, uh, that we wouldn't want to do for less money. Okay, they're neglecting the sojourner. Okay, oppression of the poor. They're practicing idolatry. You read these little minor prophets, man, they give you some graphic looks into the idolatry that's going on. They have become an empty, they, they are practicing empty, hollow religion, very much the external righteousness we've been talking about these last few weeks in the Sermon on the Mount. Externally obedient, internally dead. 3.11 is a nice little window. Micah chapter 3 verse 11 gives you a little, a little glimpse into what's going on in this people. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. 
It's prophets practice divination for money. Okay, money is the thread and the theme in all of those. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. And its prophets practice divination for money. Affluence, with affluence came corruption. And they had apparently compartmentalized faith, keeping it separate from their daily occupations and practices. I'm going to say that again because I want you all to get this. I hope that sounds potentially, frighteningly familiar. They had compartmentalized faith, keeping separate, keeping it separate from their daily occupations and their practices. Okay, there's nothing new under the sun, people. Y'all realize that. And their graphic looks into us, that are these ancient windows into the gospel, we also see ourselves. Amos and Hosea spoke into this in the north. They were prophets speaking to the northern kingdom. And Isaiah and Micah spoke into this in the south. The four of these guys, Amos and Hosea, Micah and Isaiah, are like a, a, a barbershop quartet singing in harmony. And they're singing, repent. Repent in the north. Repent in the south. Repent, people of God. The affluence that was going on, let me give you a little more description of what's going on there and why this connects to where Micah is from. The rich were getting richer at the expense of the common folk. And the common folk were farmers, agrarians by trade. And the rich were getting rich at the expense of the common folk. And it's a disparity that should have been adjusted every 50 years in the year of Jubilee. You may have heard of the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee was a time that the lands went back to the people that they went, were supposed to go to in the first place. Over the course of the 49 years that led up to that, people might experience times of poverty, times of strain, uh, famine, where they had to sell pieces of their property or all of their property. But in the 50th year, it reverted back to their ownership. But that wasn't going on in the north or the south at this time. And the rich were taking these lands, they were buying these lands, and they were keeping these lands. And the people that would have been enforcing the Jubilee practice were corrupt, so they weren't pressing the enforcement of it. The rich were buying and keeping the very glens of Morasheth. Micah had a front row seat to family members, likely, and friends and neighbors whose lands had been taken by the rich and kept through the years of Jubilee. And sadly, they were corrupt. And here's a statement of how bad this situation was here in Micah chapter 1, verse 8. Micah says, For this, this very thing I'm talking about, for this I will lament and wail, I will go stripped and naked. Man, the pastoral ministry is a tough job, but it doesn't even compare to the prophetic ministry. I will go stripped and naked, I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable. That's the wound of Samaria and Israel in the north. The situation in the north is so bad, he calls it incurable. It's beyond the point of redemption. And 722 is proof. And in the south, he says, it has come to Judah. The wound of the north has come to the south in Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people in Jerusalem. The corruption in the north is so bad. It is a wound that is incurable, and it's come to the gates and the doors of Judah. 
That's the first thing that's going on in this time and place. Affluence among the north and the south and all the terrible sins and transgressions that came along with that. The second thing that's going on in this time and place is the rise of a land and a people called Assyria. The rise of Assyria. Micah's ministry spanned these three kings that we mentioned earlier. It also spanned four uh, Assyrian kings or rulers. Tiglath-Pileser is the first one. Tiglath-Pileser III spanned from 742 to 727. Shalmaneser V spanned from 726 to 722. Remember that important year? Sargon II from 722 to 705. And Sennacherib from 704 to 681. Those dates are kind of important. If you want to jot those down, great. There's some important events happened during different, of those different periods. And you can identify which Assyrian ruler is mentioned in our Bible and how they connect to those times. The rise of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser, Shalmaneser V, Sargon II, and Sennacherib. Let me give you a little window into how this thing unfolded. Tiglath-Pileser began with the conquest of Galilee. Conquest of Galilee has relevance when we were in Matthew. We were introducing this notion of where Jesus' ministry began. And there's actually a quote in the book of Matthew about the place where things got dark first. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. That's the first place. That's where Tiglath-Pileser and the Assyrian army invaded first, in the land of Galilee. That's the place that first became dark. And that's the place, the place that first becomes light, where light has dawned and Christ's ministry began in the book of Matthew. Okay? These things are all connected. So Tiglath-Pileser invades Galilee. Shalmaneser then later attacks Samaria, but it was actually taken by Sargon II in 722 BC. And he eventually captured Samaria. And Israel became a province of Assyria. Israel became a province of Assyria. Here's the thing that I want you to kind of get at this point. And y'all, I know this is a little bit academic. I know it's a struggle, but man, it's a work that'll be worthwhile if you hang in there. But here's the thing I want you to get first off, first off early on. Israel became a province of Assyria at the hands of Tiglath, Pileser, and Shalmaneser, and Sargon at this point. The Assyrian army became God's strong arm of judgment. Don't you hear that? The Assyrian army became God's strong arm of judgment. That might be hard for you to think about, but just consider it this way. God gave permission to evil and godless people to dole out justice on his people. God gave permission to evil, godless people to dole out justice on his people. Okay, so the book of Micah. The book of Micah is a collection of 20 or so oracles. Oracles are prophetic words that are sort of encapsulated and they've been sutured together is a word that I read. It's a great word, sutured together in this one book called Micah. There are probably 20 oracles that span 40 to 50 years of ministry. And the Lord through Micah and maybe editors has, has sort of bound this thing up so that we can spend the next five weeks 
enjoying and looking through this lens of Micah. It breaks up into three cycles. Okay, there are three cycles of doom and deliverance. Okay, these 20 oracles are a mixture of doom oracles and deliverance oracles. The first cycle has doom all through it and then deliverance at the end. The first cycle is chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 13. I mean, yeah, 1 and 2 basically are the first cycle. That's where we're going to be this morning. This is the only sermon in the first cycle. The next few sermons are going to come from the second cycle, which is chapter 3, verse 1, going all the way through chapter 5, verse 15. The second cycle, look for doom and deliverance as you read. And the third cycle is chapter 6, verse 1, through chapter 7, verse 20. Each of these cycles, you'll see doom and deliverance, darkness and light. You'll see God speaking into light or speaking into darkness with good news of light. You'll see bad news and good news in each of these cycles as, you, as you're looking at these oracles. Okay. The last thing before we actually get into sort of unpacking this, the word that he saw, he says, he was an eyewitness to the things unfolding in the north and in the south. He's speaking truth, prophetic truth, into a context where he was an eyewitness. He's eyewitness to these times, and he's eyewitness to God's unfolding word. All right, let's consider this first cycle, beginning in verse 2. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that's in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. Okay, first of all, this was written to all of the peoples of the earth. Micah's speaking from Moresheth, possibly Jerusalem, to all the peoples of the earth. And he's not just talking spatially. We're not just talking geographically. God is speaking with a timeless message through Micah to us here in Greenville, Texas, 2,000 years later. He's also speaking through time and space, both of those things geographically and chronologically. This is a living message for the people of God in 2020 here in Greenville, Texas. We can enjoy that right off the bat. It's relevant. It's relevant right here, right now. He says, behold, earth and all peoples, the Lord is coming out of his place. It says he will come down and he will tread on the high places. Look at verse four, verses three and four together. Behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down, poured down a steep place. He will come down and tread on high places like a general trouncing the enemy. He will come down and mountains will melt underneath him because he is coming down bringing judgment. He's coming down bringing judgment that's sure and incurable with an incurable wound in the north and that's likely in knocking at the doors of Jerusalem in the south. He's coming down, bringing judgment in three places. First of all, Samaria, then in the hills and dales and glens of the Shephelah, Moresheth, where Micah's from, and then eventually in Jerusalem. So we're going to take brief looks at those three things. It's not going to be difficult. We're going to follow right from the passage, beginning in chapter 1, verse 5, 
All this is for the transgression of Jacob, for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. Just so we can kind of get connected to this, I want you to imagine some, some vantage point over the city of Dallas. Well, you can see the, the landscape and the cityscape of Dallas. You can see the lights in the cities and imagine something so profound that it levels it. And not only that it levels it, but it clears it to a place where you could actually plant vineyards. We're talking about absolute and complete destruction of Samaria. We're talking about a terrible thing has been prophesied here. That's why he's saying, I'm going to weep. And I'm going to walk around naked, mourning, lamenting for Samaria, for my brothers in the north. I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. Her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. A little hint at the idolatrous practices going on there in Samaria. Amos does a really nice job of capturing the graphic picture of what's going on in Samaria. In chapter 1 of Amos, it says this, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. These are men who sing songs. Actually, woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine in bowls. Woe to those at ease in Zion lying on beds of ivory and stretching themselves on couches of ease their judgment is sure their wound is incurable and then sure enough just as promised the Lord came out of his place and tread on Samaria I have a passage I want you guys to keep on speed dial here in first excuse me in second Kings chapter 17 we're going to actually look at a little Kings second Kings story that's going to mirror what's being prophesied over here in the book of Micah. Okay, so it's in 2 Kings chapter 17. And I'll give you the passage. You can read along and follow along with me. I want you to see what happens in Samaria. Chapter 17 and verse 6. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria, that would be Shalmaneser first, and then Sargon second. The king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala, which was near Nineveh, and on the, the Habar, which is the Euphrates, the river of Gozan, and the cities of the Medes. And these people that were at ease in Samaria, laying on couches of ivory, they were swimming in their affluence. They were thinking, ah, nah, judgment will never come to us. They're dragged from their homeland. And they're taken to be servants and slaves in Nineveh. And God, in fact, came down just like Micah said he was going to. Micah had a front row seat to it. It happened in 722 B.C. And the details are graphic. 
Verse 20 of the same chapter gives us a little more window. The Lord rejected the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hands of the plunderers until he cast them out of his sight. Y'all know God's not a chump, right? You know he's not a chump. And if you can climb into this story, I know it's a hard morning, y'all. I get it. I know it can feel real academic, lots of details, lots of weird names, funny names, lots of dates. But try and imagine living in the north. Or try and imagine Micah having a front row seat to what's unfolding here with his brothers being dragged to Assyria to be servants and slaves near Nineveh. Man, this is a tragic, tragic time. It says in verse 24 of chapter 17, the king of Assyria, this would be Sargon, brought then people, adding insult to injury. You've been ripped from your homelands, taken away to a foreign land to be slaves and servants. Adding insult to injury, the king of Assyria, Sargon at that point, brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Hava, Hamath, and Shabarvayim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. You've been taken from your homeland. Adding insult to injury, it's not left vacant. The one who conquered you actually moves his people into your house. Man, that's sad. That's graphic judgment. God came down out of his place and brought judgment to Samaria. He treaded on the high places ironically, like a general defeating the enemy. The second picture of judgment comes to the cities of Shephelah. Keep that Second Kings passage in your, in your like a, put a bookmark or something over there and then flip back over to Micah, picking up in chapter 1, verse 10. These are cities in Shephelah I'm about to read to you. There are nine of them here, actually ten of them, counting more, Sheph. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all in Bethel, Aphra. Roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shaphir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zanan do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Azel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Maroth wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds of the chariots, inhabitants of Lashish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. For in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Corruption, idolatry, rejecting the sojourner, all the same things we've talked about before. Therefore, you shall give parting gifts, a dowry, that is, to Moresheth Gath, because you have a new husband and his name is Assyria. God says, I'm not your husband anymore. You're going to give a dowry to your new groom, Assyria. The houses of Azab shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Marisha. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. It's prophetic at this point. It hasn't happened yet, but Micah is speaking forward into a day and age when it actually did happen in 701 B.C. In 701 B.C., flip back over to 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 13, just one sentence. It's just easy to read, but hard to imagine. In the 14th year of the king of King Hezekiah, 
Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Fortified cities, 46 of them in total. Sennacherib just took them. Just one sentence. Man, it's easy to read, isn't it? But imagine the fortified cities near us. All the places where there's uh, military bases. Fort Sill, Fort Leavenworth. Uh, there are a few in San Antonio. Man, imagine all those places taken. And you're taken from those homelands, just like your brothers were in the north in Assyria. Things are getting a whole lot closer to Jerusalem. This is in the foothills of Jerusalem. Judgment first started way up there, but now it's getting right here next, next, next door. In the beautiful glens and foothills of Morsheth. Lashik was, was among these towns. It was the most important military outpost, military stronghold for Judah was this little town, Lashish. There were excavations conducted near Lashish where they found a huge pit in which Assyrians dumped 1,500 bodies, covering them with pig bones and trash. This people that was once, were once farmers, this place that was in that was visible from Morasheth, from Micah, had become the Assyrian trash dump, trash heap, with Micah's brothers and sisters in the, in the trash, covered with pig bones. The Lord came out of his place. He came down and he tread on Judah. He brought judgment. Here's the third place in Jerusalem. Things are getting really close. Keep that finger over in 2 Kings and flip back over to Micah, looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it's in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and they take them away. It's aggressive affluence. Affluence by force. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against his family, I'm devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall walk haughtily. You shall not walk haughtily for it will be a time of disaster. In that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me to an apostate. He allots our fields. The irony. They weren't your fields. They belonged to the poor folk, the poor farmers of Shephelah. You took them by force and they're going to be given to someone else. They weren't yours in the first place. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of God. This was prophetic. Mike is speaking forward to something that hasn't happened yet. But in fact, in 701 BC, Sennacherib, Sennacherib surrounded Jerusalem. He actually surrounded with 200,000 troops, surrounded Jerusalem. Look back at 2 Kings chapter 18. We have a front row seat to how this unfolds. Beginning in verse 14, Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, at this point. He's at Lashish, this military outpost that Sennacherib has just taken, Fort Sill, we might call it. 
saying, I've done wrong, withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, required of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. He's trying to buy them off. He's casting pearls before swine, right? He's putting the holy things before the dogs, if you remember from a couple weeks ago. But sadly, it didn't work. The king of Assyria, Sennacherib, sent to Tartan, or sent the Tartan, the Rab Saris, and the Rab Shekah with a great army from Latius to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And then starting, beginning in verse 19, all the way through verse 35, the Rab Shekah, surround Jerusalem and heckle Jerusalem in their own tongue. God's holy city, they heckle them in their own native tongue. Eliakim was the man that represented Hezekiah at the wall there. And it says, after all this heckling took place, it says, the people were silent. And they answered him not a word, for the king's command, do not answer him. Then, the, then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household... And Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Ashaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. Here's a little graphic, a little window into the words of the Rabshakeh. At one point during their, their heckling, Eliakim begged him, please speak in Aramaic. Please don't speak in the native tongue of the men on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said to them, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Man, what a terrible, terrible time. As soon as Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes, he covered himself with sackcloth and he went into the house of the Lord. Man, what a terrible, terrible time this is. Sennacherib and his army, 200,000, are surrounding Jerusalem. The sin and transgression of Israel now joins the wickedness and evil of Judah. And the rich are going to lose their land. They've already lost Shephelah. And God is going to take their homes. And that actually happened when God came down in 701 BC. The Lord came down and he's knocking on the door in the gate of Jerusalem at this point. He came down and tread on the unrepentant. Micah saw the armies of Assyria and the judgment of God. And you got to realize, I brought this up before and I'm going to bring it up again. God sometimes uses godless people to do his work. To do his work of judgment. God uses godless men to do his work of judgment. The Lord came out of his place and he came down to judge his people. It's a tragic story up to this point. If we ended right here, man, we would go home sad, broken, defeated. Thinking, man, what are we even doing here? We have a God who is a righteous judge. And man, these people, we're like them. We're sinful. We add sin to wickedness, to evil. And we're doomed, aren't we? We could look at this window, this graphic window into Samaria, into the Shephelah 
into the doors and gates, knocking on Jerusalem as Jerusalem surrounded, thinking, man, we are doomed and we are done. But then there's a beautiful little oracle of deliverance right at the end of this first cycle. And that's where we're going to end our morning, right here in verses 12 and 13 of Micah. You could almost start this little passage with the word yet. Judgment in Samaria, judgment in Shephelah, judgment at the doors and the gates of Jerusalem. Yet, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. What great news. This is a beautiful taste, a beautiful window into what repentance looked like. And I'm going to show you here in 2 Kings. What repentance looks like and what God does with the repentant. He does what seems impossible at this point. Jerusalem is heckled and besieged and all looks hopeless. The fate of Samaria and 46 cities have unfolded right in front of them. And they are looking like at this point, that's going to be the fate of Jerusalem. But Isaiah joins repentant Hezekiah in prayer in 2 Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse 15. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You've made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, the heckling of Sennacherib, which he sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands. They've cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God. Man, that's what repentance looked like. That's what the repentance sound like. And then here's what unfolds as a result. The surviving remnant in verse 30 of the house of Judah shall again take the root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant. There's no sign of hope for them at this point. And he says, he promises, out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of the mouth of Mount Zion, a band of survivors, the zeal of the Lord will do this. God says concerning the king of Israel or of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mount against it. By the way that he came will be the way that he returns. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And then that very night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 Assyrians in their camp. When people arose early the next morning, behold, there were just dead bodies everywhere. 185,000 Assyrians dead in a night. 
Talk about deathly silence. Can you imagine that morning? Can you imagine the, the sound that 200,000 troops would make surrounding Jerusalem? The noise, the clanking of swords, the clanking of food plates and everything else, their, their, their voices, their heckling. And the next morning is deathly silence because God came down and didn't just bring judgment. He brought deliverance for a remnant. He made a way through when there didn't appear to be any other way. He did the unimaginable, 185,000 troops. That's the combination of the Revolutionary War, Vietnam War, and World War I combined in a night. Deathly silence in the morning. No heckling, no spears, no swords rattling. What a glorious glorious deliverance and like sheep in a fold sheep in a pasture this noisy multitude this throng of men called a remnant narrowly escapes disaster man it's beautiful this same God who left his place and came down to bring judgment on the unrepentant brings beautiful and wonderful and surprise deliverance for the repentant, this noisy throng called a remnant. Man, I know this has worked this morning. It's worked for me too. But I hope if you paid attention and you connected to this, it sounded familiar, didn't it? Did it? Did it sound wonderfully familiar? Man, I can't help but think of Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Consider this passage. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. God came down. God left his place and came down, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were stuck in Jerusalem, hopeless and hemmed in by the enemy outnumbered, surrounded, and heckled. God came down to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent His Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We're not stuck in Jerusalem anymore. And what happened in 701 B.C.? at the hands of the angel of the Lord, is but a shadow of what's been accomplished for us when God came down in the person of Christ. Amen? Man, I know it was work this morning, but what a treasure. Both Israel and Judah are just graphic examples of the condition of man. And it's dark. And we're due doom. We're due the judgment of God. We've got sin, transgression, wickedness, and evil. And these graphic windows into Samaria, into the Shephelah, into the gates and the doors of Jerusalem, that's a picture of God's terrible justice. And we have to appreciate those in order to appreciate deliverance. I don't know that we can make sense of good news apart from seeing the darkness of the bad news. Man, we had to work at it this morning, but that's plenty of bad news. But what? Good news. What surprise and wonderful 
deliverance. He who opens the breach goes up before them. Ugh. He who opens the breach. This backdrop of judgment and darkness and doom is the backdrop for this beautiful picture of God's grace and mercy. It's invisible without that in the background. We have to see it because it's there and then that we see his, him delivering a repentant remnant, a noisy throng. That's us. A noisy throng clamoring in the narrow way, right? Jostling. Jostling in the narrow way. A noisy throng. Man. Surrounded by Satan's army, besieged by sin and death, we were hemmed in, but he opened the breach so that those behind him and those in him and those united to Christ by faith, this noisy throng would have life. Freed to follow God, the people of God, the church, a noisy throng. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you came down sending your son for us. Lord, he opened the breach for us. He broke down and broke through and provided a way out of a hopeless situation for us. Lord, I pray that as a result of this, we'll be a noisy throng celebrating the victory that you've given us in Christ. Lord, it was complete, it was, it's surprising, and it's wonderful. And we are grateful. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. You can take your little supper cup and go ahead and get that ready. I'll share a passage with you from uh, the book of Colossians for our supper. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, we can incorporate our story into this, you who were stuck in Jerusalem, you who had no hope, you who had been heckled by the Rabshakeh in your own tongue, you who had a sense of the fate that you were due, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Man, he breached the way through for us in one work, and that was his perfect life in that cross, that terrible cross. That is our way through. And through it, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, 185,000 of them plus. He disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's enjoy his work of the cross together, take and eat in faith. Thankful that he came down, not only to bring judgment, but to bring deliverance for a noisy throng called the remnant. Take and drink in faith. Let's pray. Lord, what a good meal. What a hearty meal of victory. 
What an unbelievable work you've accomplished for us in Christ. Lord, may it galvanize us. May it bless us, move us, encourage us, fuel us to be salty, bright, and aromatic, to be the people you've called us to be. We enjoy you so much this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Y'all can stand and we'll continue in song.
Oh, 